Church family, we are uh, we're continuing in our uh, journey through the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of John. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. If you're using the church Bible, you're going to find that on 1029. 1029, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you still have a few have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not spoiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me. Um, I do this routinely before preaching. Uh, we need the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God. And um, it's for both hearer and speaker. So let's ask for that now. Father, we need to hear from you. And we ask that you would speak to us, even as we sang we want to be conformed to the image of your son. We want your will to be done in our lives. And we know that the power for that comes through your word. So we pray that you would give us humble hearts, ready minds and ears to hear what you have to say. And God, we know that a man cannot say the things of God. There needs to be a voice beyond the mere man standing here. And so we ask that your spirit would do that work that only you can do. And we pray it that in all of these things, the Lord Jesus himself would be glorified. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're dealing with Sardis. Can you say Sardis? No, we don't do that. <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a Trekkie, uh, but I am a fan of the original Star Trek series. Some of you might appreciate that one. Uh, the reason I like it is because it's campy and it is predictable and it's funny in ways they probably never meant it to be. And I, I think if you've watched any of those, you know that there's this recurring plot line and it all deals with the fate of the landing party. So there's Captain Kirk, maybe Mr. Spock, Dr. McCoy, among others, they would be transported to some new planet. And you just knew what was coming, right? They're all there in the transporter room, ready to beam down. And there was that one guy you'd never seen before. He usually has the red shirt, right? Well, as they explore this new planet, boldly going where no man has gone before. There was sure to be some kind of an environmental danger or hostile creature that would threaten the crew. 
And then, of course, you knew just at the right time, it happened. The guy in the red shirt would be mortally injured. And, of course, the story couldn't advance until Dr. McCoy gave his professional assessment to Captain Kirk. He's dead, Jim. <laughs> How many times have we heard that? Now, he may claim to be nothing more than a country doctor, but he knows dead. <laughs> I got to say, that's just TV at its finest, isn't it? Huh? Uh, of course, it's no surprise to the audience that you've come to expect, well, there's the guy in the red shirt. He's not coming back. It was completely obvious, and it was very much expected. Now, what does this have to do with our Bible text this morning? Considering our Bible text, the church in Sardis had this reputation for being alive, but it was not obvious to others but they were, in fact, dead. And we learn this truth because it's Jesus' assessment. He says it. Now, directing his rebuke, he tells John, who is told to write these things down, right? And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, in, in the tradition of what's been happening in these letters, Jesus introduces himself in a way that's reminiscent of what John saw in his, in his initial vision, right? The words of him. And Jesus uses this self-description that harkens back then to uh, what John saw in chapter 1, verse 4 and 1, 6. First of all, the seven, the seven spirits of God. There aren't seven Holy Spirits, but it's really a symbolic. And as we will discover through the book of Revelation, numbers are highly symbolic. And that the seven spirits is, again, this is uh, in, in the vision, right? It's symbolic. The seven spirits are symbolic of the, the complete work of the Holy Spirit. Seven is being that perfect number. The complete work of the Spirit to, to breathe life into dead souls, but also the fact that the very same Holy Spirit is the one who indwells and gives life to the church. So Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits, but also symbolically uh, holding the seven stars, which means that, that Jesus himself is declaring that he's got a hold on these churches, the stars representing the various angels of the churches. We're told that earlier. Now, as for Sardis, there's not a, much to say about it, certainly from the text and from history. Uh, it's a city in Asia Minor. And so if you look at, the, at the, the Bible map in the back of your printed Bible, I realize that many of you use your phones, but it's the advantage of a paper Bible. You'll see the map there. And in the seven churches in Revelation are sort of formed in a circle, um, just off of the, in, in from the coast of the island Patmos, where John is exiled, if Ephesus to Smyrna, up north, Pergamum, to the east and slightly south, Thyatira, and further east and slightly south is Sardis. So we're coming around the circle, then we'll have Philadelphia and Laodicea, and then the circle turns back to Ephesus. What's significant about this city? Well, it was a wealthy city. We do know that from history. Uh, perhaps, and I'm just speculating here, perhaps as a result of their wealth, the church, and, and, and Again, reflecting on the rebuke that Jesus has, perhaps the church had become secularized. They'd become worldly. Now, according to Eusebius, if you're familiar with him, he, is a, he wrote the ecclesiastical history. Uh, the message to Sardis here in Revelation perhaps had an, a, a positive corrective effect. By the middle of the second century, the bishop there Melito, you can look him up. He was known for his learning and he was known for his piety, his godliness. 
So clearly the church had continued. It had not died. So the conclusion is they took this rebuke to heart. In fact, uh, Melito, just an interesting side note here, Melito even wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. Now, as I've read and studied this, uh, and I take it as with all of the churches, we're meant to examine ourselves as the church today. And in so doing, we, we take the opportunity as it regards this particular letter, I think we take the opportunity to guard against spiritual deadness. Now, it's a rebuke. There's some positive in this. But what I want to do this morning is take these warnings and really consider some positive directives that, if applied, will do what the letter warns against, will guard us against spiritual deadness, will, in fact, keep us alive. And, and here are my takeaways this morning, if you will. First of all, be real. Church, be real. Second, remember what you received and heard. And third, be worthy. First of all, be real. It used to be that you could buy a, a kit and, and make your own exotic car. Um, the, the bodies of these cars, if, if you might not recognize them, but they're, they're often uh, made to resemble Italian exotic cars like Maseratis and Ferraris and Lamborghinis. Now, to the untrained eye, you might be impressed with the sight of one of these. It's like, oh, look at that car. That is until the owner fired up the engine. I see many of these, and again, I remember, I don't see these today, but from my childhood, I do remember seeing these. Once they fired that up, you realize you're not hearing the roar of a Ferrari engine. You're actually healing, hearing uh, what amounts to a 50-horsepower a, a Volkswagen Beetle engine, right? In fact, these kit cars were built on a, on a chassis, retaining all of the under, underlying technology and just kind of looking nice on the top. Now, that 50 horsepower is a far cry from 560 horsepower of a Ferrari 512 engine. Far cry. The promise of the outside was not matched by what was inside. A profound disappointment. It wasn't a real exotic. And in a sense, those cars were automotive hypocrites. They weren't real. Now, Jesus had strong words for the church in Sardis. No one likes a fake, and Jesus didn't like a fake either. I, I take it that he's calling them hypocrites because they're not really what they present themselves to be. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, that reputation that they had, clearly from Jesus' perspective, didn't rest on what was real. The outside didn't match the inside. And so I was asking myself the question, how, how can a church have a reputation for being alive and yet somehow not be? If the measure of the vitality of a church, and this is how, if the measure of a vitality of a church is different from how Jesus assesses it. And that's clearly what's the case here. Now, it doesn't, the text here doesn't explain if Sardis lost their way. We don't, we don't know what the issue was, that their works were not measuring up. That's what Jesus said. 
But I would say this, it still happens to churches today. And so we, we take the warning, right? If Jesus is saying, Sardis, you're dead, the warning for us is, well, let's not be dead. <laughs> Alternative is be real. We want to be real. And so churches that are dead, they may look significant. And I would say the reason for this is perhaps some have simply abandoned the gospel. Or, or maybe the gospel message itself has been so watered down and corrupted that it would be unrecognizable. And of course, we have the, the aberrations in, in what is called the, the Protestant world. You have the word faith people, the, the name it and claim it types, the blab it and grab it, right? The, the ones that equate uh, comfort and worldly success somehow with God's favor, and they preach this boldly. You see them on the, the TBN and on the other side, you've got the churches known for their activism. You know, they, they're all about victims' rights and social change, and, and they're, they're applauded by the, the political progressives. But then you have the ones in the political right, the churches that are so focused on getting the right conservative candidate elected, and they even allow their pulpit to be used for political speeches. And Christians who are politically conservative applaud them for their courage, and then in between those two extremes, you have churches known for being successful. They have, a, they have a brand. They are popular. They have popular preachers with lucrative book deals and fancy running shoes, right? Their band is popular on all the streaming services. They have impressive buildings with the best technology. They have broad national, even international Reach. Now, I'm not saying that every megachurch is necessarily in the hypocrite category, but some certainly are. And how does this happen? Well, there's such a, a great temptation. And none of us are immune. None of us pastors are immune. There's such a great temptation to put value on things that do not matter to Jesus. And, and I'll say this. Because I know this temptations, and I think pastors are often the culprit. It does get picked up by church members, but let me tell you, give you an example of how this, how the seeds of this are sown. I've been at conferences, pastors' conferences, where, where that ministry envy kind of rears its ugly head, and that casual conversation. So, how big is your church? What are you, what are you running on Sunday's attendance? How many staff you got there? These superficial things have nothing to do with gospel faithfulness. And yet, I'll say this, pastors are tempted to think about the numbers, the budget, the staff. And churches can pick up on these false ideas and somehow think, well, look how big we are as a church. Look how significant we are. And, and I'll say this too, and I've seen this over the years, and I, I pray we're never like this, but it is very possible to win people to a church without winning them to Christ. The test of that, the test of that, we, we, the elders read a book a number of years ago called Compelling Community. It was a fabulous book, but I'll, I'll just paraphrase one of the statements in there. If you have a local church that's apparently thriving, and you take out, you just remove entirely the gospel message, and the church still survives and thrives, that's sad. I would hope 
that any faithful church that loses the gospel would absolutely collapse in on itself because there's no reason to exist apart from the gospel. Well, something about Sardis wasn't real. Jesus pronounced the church at Sardis to be dead. They were hypocrites. They were not real. And, and just to remind you how much this mattered to Jesus, he was never a fan of those who had this religious veneer but were devoid of truth. Remember what he said to the religious leaders in his day. He said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. When the Bible says woe, when Jesus says woe, that's a judgment word. That's a condemning word. Jesus hates the fakery. It's unclean. It's rotten. It's death. It's cursed. Now, alternatively, what should matter? And I'm often drawn back to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2. 2. He said to them, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think of that. I decided to know nothing. He isn't speaking of his own knowledge, but to say that the thing that I'm going to talk about, the thing that is going to be on my mind, the thing that is in our conversation, nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now for Sardis, the sentence wasn't final. There's good news here. Jesus' rebuke then left some room for correction. He said, verse 2, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Look, your works are not right, but there's an opportunity. Wake up. There were signs of life among a few. So to, to prevent their complete demise, Jesus commends them. Just wake up. You see, there's no... There, there is hope. There's hope for a church, no matter how far gone. Where there's repentance, that is the key. And because Jesus himself possesses the power of life, he called Lazarus out of that tomb. He certainly has the power to revivify a church that has died. But how? Jesus' prescription to the way to life is the next point. So, first of all, be real. Don't fake it. Secondly, remember. Remember. Now, if we think about what gives us personhood, it's not just that we have these bodies and the ability to reason, but, but I think a great measure of our life is memory, right? Who you are right now the way you think, the, the, the things you do, and why you do those things. They, they rest a great deal on the memory of past experiences, right? You remember the painful ones, and you avoid to seek them. You remember the joyful ones, and you revel in the memory of them. Now, in some very real sense, to remember is to be alive. And I know those who have impaired memory and, and suffering from Alzheimer's or, or dementia of some sort, but in terms of the living and, and how that functions, I think for the most part, 
Our memory is what, what sort of defines our existence. We have knowledge of ourselves in space and time in a progression, right? Well, in some sense, the church in Sardis had lost their collective memory. But they needed to come back as an alternative to what made them alive in order to keep them alive. They needed to come back to the memories. Jesus tells them, verse 3, remember. Remember then what you received and heard. And I want to take these in reverse order. First of all, remember what you heard. Remember what you heard. Now, now I think you get this, that, that hearing is not merely detecting sounds, right? But it's grasping and taking to heart the meaning of that which is said. And what we're dealing with here, what you heard, is, is really the content of the message. It's simple, yet it is profound, and it is powerful. And the New Testament shorthand word for what you heard is the gospel. It is good news. That's what that means. The Apostle Paul gives a great gospel summary in 1 Corinthians 15. I often go back here, but if you ever want a, like a, a concise statement of what is the gospel, here it is. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. The gospel is this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's a loaded statement. That Christ died. It doesn't stop there, right? It's the why for our sins. But he didn't remain in the grave. He was raised on the third day. And the title Christ, well, that's loaded with Bible meaning. He is the anointed of God, the eternal son of God who became flesh. He is the Christ. He is the one who died. God, the son, died in your place. So, uh, so Jesus is telling the church, remember that. Remember what you heard. Now, I can imagine you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I, I couldn't forget that. But they forgot. They've forgotten Sardis. And if the risk of forgetting was not real, it would make no sense whatsoever in another book of the Bible for the writer of Hebrews to make this exhortation. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. That's the exhortation. Don't let go of this. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews goes on to, to say that, that we do that, and we take this exhortation, brothers and sisters, we do that by helping one another do good works and, and to show love to one another as we gather together. We need one another to hold fast this confession of faith, right? And, and I've seen this time and time again. As people drift away from the local church, they forget. They might have claimed. You, you might have a conversation with them. Do you, do you remember when you were baptized? Do you remember what you were saying to the people there? Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll have the facts about it, but their lives no longer reflect that reality. So they have the memory of it, but they forgot what it meant. And if the church loses the gospel message, if we, if we forget to remind one another who Jesus is and that he died and rose again and he did that for our sins and to welcome us into the family of God, well, if we stop talking about that, we'll lose it. I read somewhere, and I, I can't put my finger on who said it, but somebody described that, that at the beginning when, when a church starts, the gospel is, is celebrated and, and preached. 
And after a while, it's assumed. And then after a little while longer, it's neglected. And at some point, it's just completely forgotten. It's a progression. We have to come back to that message. If we're not preaching Christ and Him crucified, we're on the road to death. Somebody once, uh, this is years ago, and, and I've, uh, I've always made a point of proclaiming Christ and Him crucified based on Paul's exhortation, but there was a, a well-meaning um, church member many years ago, long gone, uh, who said to me, well, using this kind of picture, look, I already bought the car. Why do you keep telling me to buy the car? By which he meant, you keep telling us the gospel. I already believe it. Tell me, tell me, what, tell me how to drive it. Well, I think we need a reminder. And I think we need to keep coming back to what the Apostle Paul said and the reality of the gospel itself. So remember what you heard, but also remember what you received, what you received. These are the effects. What do you get when you believe the gospel? What you received? What happened as a result of hearing and believing? Well, first of all, you received redemption and forgiveness. We know this from other parts of the Bible. So let's review some of these things. Redemption and forgiveness. I'll give you a verse, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So I think you get this, to be redeemed is to be bought back. You know, if, if something, you know, you run out of money and you have to take something to the pawn shop and get a little cash out of it, the thing sits there, hopefully. And maybe you come on better times and you go redeem that thing. You get the ring back or, or whatever valuable it was. Or someone held hostage and the ransom is paid to rescue them. Our reality is that we were held hostage to sin. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to it. And Jesus paid the price with his own life to rescue us from that slavery. So you have been redeemed. And in so doing, you've also been given forgiveness. What a glorious truth. Remember that. And in remembering that, you remember where you came from. Remember that you are an alien to God, that you are an outsider, that you are not part of his family. And remember what Jesus did to bring you in. Remember that. Remember what you received. You also received Adoption, and we've already sort of touched on this. Another verse, Galatians 4, 4 through 6, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So this is the act of God in his grace to send his one and only son. To do what? To redeem, there's that word again, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now think about this. Jesus is called the son of God. He is the supreme, rightly declared son of God. But you've been adopted if you have trusted in Christ. If you've heard the message of the gospel and believed, you've trusted that Christ died for your sins 
You get melded into the family of God and you get to be called a child of God. Now think about your own children. If you're a good parent, and I hope you are, there's never a time, no matter what they do, there's never a time you think, that's not my son or daughter. You may be disappointed in the, the trajectory of their life. You may, you may be frustrated by the relationship. But you've never said, I hope you've never said, I disown you. And when you're brought into the family of God, God the Father says, you are mine. You're in my family forever. You will never be disowned. You've received adoption. And you can cry out to God, Abba. Well, third, you've also received the Holy Spirit. This is glorious. When you heard the word of truth, it says in Ephesians 1.13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, to be sealed, it, it, it means that you're given a new spiritual birth. There's a lot in that. That you were set apart for God's family. You were, you were uh, fused to, to him in union with Christ and in this unbreakable promise that God has made to give you a bodily resurrection and an eternity in fellowship with Christ. You were sealed for that. We don't have it right now. We don't have that bodily resurrection experience with Jesus face to face. We see him through the eyes of faith and the word. But we've been sealed Marked, set, a, set apart for a, a special purpose and a, a new bodily eternal life. So remember that. Remember these promises. Remember that you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You see, the way back from spiritual deadness, remember these things. Remember. Remember what you heard. Remember the gospel. Remember what you received, all of the benefits of, of being in the family of God. Now, if the church has lost the gospel, if the church has forgotten these things and refuses to repent, there's, there's a concern. And, and so understand this, that the church will be destroyed. Individuals who are in the family of God they're secure in Christ, and, and, and God, one way or another, will wake them up to repentance. But the point here is that the church will go away, and it ought to, right, if they've forgotten these things. He says, Jesus says, if you don't repent, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And it's like a thief. It's unexpected and sudden. Judgment language. So simply stated, we won't dwell on this. The way back to life is repent and remember. Now, I don't believe as a church we're in a place where we've forgotten the gospel, but brothers and sisters, let's hold on to that. Let's remind each other of it. Let's never stray from the gospel. Remember it. Remember the good news about what Jesus has done for you. Remember it to one another. Remember how you were a captive to sin and its consequences. Remember that. Remember that God took you from being an orphan to, to join you to his own eternal family and make you a co-heir of Christ. That's glorious. And remember that the Spirit of God literally took up residence in your life. That he convicts you of sin, and that's a glorious thing. It reminds you, and when you open the Word of God, he... he, he he reminds you that it's truth. 
And when you speak to other believers about the gospel, about the word of God, somehow it just becomes bigger and more alive. That's the, the spirit of God working through the word of God, confirming the truth in each of us. And when you remember, and you come back again and again and again, that makes all of the difference in your life going forward. Well, finally, finally, be worthy. Be worthy. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. You can't make yourself worthy, but you can be worthy. Now, worth. Uh, so I was just thinking about an example of this. Uh, this is dating back to colonial times. You're all familiar with the, the high school and college tradition of, of selecting a, a valedictorian, right? I think it's being tested and maybe pushed aside. But, but that person was selected because they were worthy, worthy to give the farewell address at the commencement ceremonies. And it recognizes that worth through, through the fact that that individual has, has had the highest acad academic achievement in the student body. And in the minds of most people, I think you'd agree, it would be absurd to bestow that honor on the student who barely scraped by, who showed little interest in academic excellence, right? That would be silly. The one at the bottom of the class would be unworthy of the honor. That makes sense. Worthiness is the acknowledgement that there is congruity between the ideal and the individual. That's what that means, right? So we see in verse 4 of our text, we find Jesus commending a few in Sardis. They are worthy. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, if Jesus commends them for being worthy, we want to be numbered among the worthy. Again, that... that Word worthy means befitting, it's congruous, corresponding to a thing. So what, is, what, is this, what are these individuals corresponding to? What is the measure of their worthiness? Well, Jesus says it, they have not soiled their garments. Now, I think you get this, but just to be clear, this has nothing to do with getting mud in your clothing. It's metaphorical, right? They have not soiled their garments. To be soiled, that word in the original is to pollute, to defile. And if you look through scripture, that word is often associated with the corrupting nature of sexual immorality and adultery. So in contrast, they walk, they progress through life. They conduct their lives with Jesus in white, which is to say that they remain undefiled by those corruptions. These few are worthy because they correspond. They are like Jesus in moral character, which is the only place here that we might get a hint that what the problem was, where it ended up with their deadness is because they had soiled their garments. They had become worldly. They had adopted the values and the mores of the culture around. They had just capitulated to all of that. And Jesus is saying, there are some who have not. So what Jesus, of course, commends, brothers and sisters, we, we should pursue, right? God has always had a standard for his people of holiness. When he, when he rescued his people from, uh, from slavery in Egypt, Israel, he didn't free them so that they could do what they wanted, right? He wanted them to reflect 
his moral character. These people have been set apart to reflect the moral character of God. The Lord said, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, which means set yourselves apart. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And that command was reiterated by Jesus in, in his commission when we, when we are commanded to observe or obey everything that he's commanded. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 5, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And Paul gives the contrast here, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. A church where there's covetousness and sexual immorality, dead church. Now here's the thing. Some of you have this in your past, and I think you know this. If you think that by pure force of will and self-determination, you can make yourself worthy, you have not understood the gospel. If you think that by purely gritting your teeth and pushing through that you can make yourself worthy before God, you have not understood the gospel. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We know that. It's often memorized. But the gift of God is eternal life. The gift is eternal life. And that gift is conferred upon all who believe. And it's a divine exchange. I'm going to come back to an oft-quoted verse. I love this. This is the exchange. This is how it makes it possible for us to receive eternal life for our sake. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He that is God made him that is Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that, what's the effect? So that in him, in Jesus Christ, in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a glorious picture a glorious truth. So that's your sin. That's, that's my sin. Imputed to Jesus on the cross. And in that same vicarious and sacrificial act, his perfect righteousness is put on us. And that's for all who look to him in faith. But the other reality of Jesus' death and what it accomplished, it not only takes away the eternal consequence of sin, condemnation, but it breaks the death grip that sin has, us, has on us in the present. That's the glory of this. So, as a result of what Jesus has done at the cross, we no longer have to sin. We actually have the power to obey. So we must hate sin, especially, especially, and, and I hope this is less so. Hate the sin in your own life more than you hate the sin in others. Hate the sin in others, to be sure. But first, look inward. Hate your own sin. Be a confessing person. Claim what says in 1 John 1 9 that, that if we confess our sins, and that confession means like, God, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just 
to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness, the whole record of it. That's, that's the trajectory of our lives. If you love holiness, then you'll be a confessing person. The power not to soil our garments going forward, even if your garments had been soiled in the past, if you've repented of it, that's forgiven. The record is, is, is cast as far as the east is from the west. And now the power for holiness is yours through Christ. The power to resist sinful temptations. To focus on the things that God loves. To have God give us a love for what he loves. That's the amazing power of the gospel. Now, if you spend your time uncritically looking at the world, I, I think you'll eventually be drawn into its corruptions. If you're entertained by what is sinful, it's what you become over time. You know, the adage, you are what you eat. If you fill up on Christ, if you constantly gaze at him, you'll increasingly become like him. So if you want power over sin in your life, something you're battling that just, where are you looking? Who are you looking at? Another one of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 3.18. There's a larger thought there where the Apostle Paul uses the imagery of Moses going up to the mountain to receive the law, and he had, he had, had to put a veil on his face. But I'll just, I'll just get to the, the core here. He says this, and we all, the believers in Jesus, wherever you are in your journey of faith, brand new or well on the way, and we all, beholding the glory of the Lord. So where do you see the glory of the Lord? Well, you see it in the gospel message, right? So, and we all, beholding, looking at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Think of the power of that. When you behold the glory of the Lord, when you stare at Jesus, when you focus on the gospel and the beauty of it, you look like him. The image of Christ gets increasingly formed in you. And if the image of Christ is getting formed in you, then you're going to increasingly hate your own sin. You're going to increasingly love what is righteous and pure and good. And you will become worthy. Right? So if you want to be like Jesus, just keep looking at him. It is that simple. Well, what we present on the outside must be the reality of what we are on the inside. So be real. The opinion of others matters less than what Jesus says about us. That's important. He sees, remember, he sees all things. Now, church, we live in a time of great prosperity. And like Sardis, this is our reality, right? We face the daily temptation to capitulate to the world. We face the temptation to adopt its values, to seek its approval. Get along, right? Just to go along. Go along to get along. It's, it's the path of least resistance. 
but it is the road to sure spiritual death. So, the scriptures this morning, we take them to heart, church, for us. Guard ourselves. Guard yourself against spiritual death by looking back to the cross of Christ, remembering what you heard and what you received. Remember that. And if you do, you'll be worthy and endure. Because the power for your worthiness comes from the gospel itself. It's not found within. The one who conquers, says verse 5, will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. White garment, the pure righteousness of Christ as our identity in him forever. And on that day, this is what you can look forward to. The Lord Jesus will present you to his father. This one, this one that you have given me, this one, his name, her name, has been written in your book. This one has come to me, and you will never cast him out. So, what the Spirit says to the churches, he says to us this morning, he who has an ear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we know the danger. Your word makes that clear to us. Uh, we pray that you would keep us, hold us, rattle us away from, from finding the things of the world too interesting and keep reminding us through your people, through your word, by your spirit indwelling us, keep us focused on the gospel of Christ the very message that made us alive, the very message that keeps us alive. So, Father, give us those ears to hear what your Spirit is saying and guard us so that one day when we stand before you, we'll find that our names have been written in that book. And we look forward to that day. We'll enjoy that fellowship with you forever. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.